Well, today uh, we are going to finally, I think anyway, uh, finish out the introduction to the doctrine of life. We, we so far haven't really gotten into the systematic study of the doctrine of life, which when we think of uh, doctrine, it's not all systematic, but uh, a lot of it is systematic in, in the study of doctrine. But uh, so far we've really been just going through an introduction uh, of the doctrine of life, the teachings of life that, that really God set forth. And, and this is really important and vital for us to understand as we consider the, uh, the, the doctrine of life, is that God, he is the author of life. He is the only author of life, and, and he is the self-existent one, and we see that. He made us, mankind, in his own image. We are the, the apex of, of his creation. And then as it continues on, uh, we were able to look and to see that, um, that sin entered this world, and that as, as sin entered this world, that, that death entered this world, specifically uh, spiritual death in the, the Garden of Eden, but then shortly after that, in Genesis chapter 4, we see that physical death enters in. That physical death enters in, and it was, um, it was through Cain uh, killing Abel there was the first physical death. But today we're going to be looking at how uh, it's not just physical death that enters in, and that idea of spiritual death that enters in, but in right along uh, aspect with it, spiritual death is that ultimate death. Uh, that ultimate death that, that people will seek that, or, or that people will have in life. And I think that this is absolutely vital to understand as we look at the doctrine of life, to see life's competitor, which is death, and to see how it comes, uh, its rival, I should say, life's rival, uh, which is death, and to see how it comes at it in this ultimate idea of death. And to truly understand the framework of the doctrine of life, we have to see this ultimate death that comes in. And we'll go ahead and open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. This is what we read uh, in our scripture reading this morning. And this is the ultimate death that does come, the finality of death. We have physical death that happens. We, of course, have spiritual death uh, in, in one sense that is waiting for us. Uh, and in, in it happens that, that we are in a spiritually dead state. But ultimately, it is, it is finally realized that spiritual death is realized at the great white throne of judgment, which is accounted in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. If you follow along as I read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose face the earth had in heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And we see this, this year, the second death, as it's referred to. It, it is that ultimate realization of spiritual death. God is a merciful, long-suffering God. And if you are on this earth today, God is pleading with you, if you do not know him as his Savior, as your Savior, that you might be saved so that you do not have to, 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 to be uh, at this, this judgment, at this great white throne of judgment. And he is pleading with you today. But ultimately, his patience will end. Ultimately, our fate is sealed after the first death, which is physical death. Whether we're going to spend an eternity living in heaven with God, or whether we're going to spend an eternity 
in hell, dying forever. But here we see the second death as it is described. It is described, first of all, and this seems pretty obvious, but it's after the first death. The second death is after the first death. This is pretty obvious, but it is very important to understand. Nobody dies the second death without first dying the first death. Nobody dies that second death without dying first the first death. In the first death here, of course, it tells us in Hebrews 9.27, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this judgment, we see here this judgment is the second death that it's referring to. So man dies once. I know this is, this is not hard for us to, to really wrap our head around, but it is absolutely vital that, that we, we keep it in the forefront of our mind, especially as we consider the doctrine of life. That, that man dies once. We die physically. Every single one of us will die physically. We, we, we think of the, uh, the, the reality of death, and, and even as the testimony that, that Jack gave here this morning uh, of his sister going and, and passing away this week, and also uh, uh, another person, Patrick, was telling me of a friend who was diagnosed with uh, advanced leukemia, uh, in an aggressive leukemia, and they just have uh, were given days to weeks to live. In uh, uh, in uh, in all this here hit me this week as I've been studying out and looking at this passage, and it comes as, as striking to understand and to realize death will come. Death will come to every single one of us. There is no doubt. With one remedy, and that is the rapture. With one remedy which is the rapture. We won't face physical death if the rapture comes, but we all will die unless the rapture intervenes. But I want us to understand here the second part of this verse, Hebrews 9.27. And it is appointed for men to die once, and then it says this, but after this, the judgment. And after this, the judgment. We looked at this last Sunday night uh, quite a bit as we went. We looked just a little bit of this judgment, but we looked more at the, the believer's judgment uh, as we looked at the Bema Seat judgment, that we would be judged, that our lives would be weighed. But here we see that all men will be judged. And the ultimate death, which hopefully we go to the ultimate life, hopefully we accepted Christ as your Savior, and you will go to the ultimate life so you don't have to worry so much about the ultimate death, at least as it comes to your life. But the ultimate death, the ultimate death is the great white throne of judgment. It says, but after this judgment... And then they are cast into the lake of fire and the great white throne of judgment. But all men will die unless the rapture intervenes. Small and great will die. Death has no prejudice. Death has no prejudice, small or great. A significant life on this earth is viewed in the eyes of the world or an insignificant life on this earth is viewed in the eyes of the world. The greatest prince and the greatest pauper will all die one day. Death has no prejudice. The only means of escaping death, at least the first death, is if the rapture comes and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But other than that, we all will have the first death, but we can't escape the second death through Jesus Christ. But today we are going to look and break down this idea of the second death. And this seems trivial, but to understand the doctrine of life, we need to rightly understand the dynamic of its competitor, death. Man spiritually died at the Garden of Eden for the first time. Man physically died in the field when Cain uh, killed Abel for the first time. In this passage, though, we see the ultimate death of man, and this is the second death, and it is after the first death, which is the physical death. 
And it is the final end of the spiritually dead state of man. Because God is merciful and gracious, he gives opportunity for man to accept Jesus Christ as a savior. But the eternal state of man is sealed and then experienced. The eternal state of man is sealed. Once, once we go and we die, if we have either accepted Jesus as our Savior or we have not accepted Jesus as our Savior, our eternal fate is sealed there at that death, and it waits judgment. It awaits judgment. We see here today, as we look at the great white throne of judgment, this is the second death, which is vital to understand when it comes to the doctrine of life. This is the ultimate spiritual death. Man is dead spiritually because of sin. We've looked at that. Man is dead spiritually because of sin. And man is sealed as spiritually dead by rejection of Christ. And this is what is meant in John 3.18 when it says this. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Son of God. When we reject Jesus Christ... When we go and we die rejecting Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're rejecting him. If we do such a thing, we are sealing our fate and we go into a point of waiting. Now that waiting isn't a a, a wonderful period. In fact, we're going to go and look at the descriptions of hell later on. And we're going to see that that the waiting period here, that the sealing isn't uh, sunshine and rainbows. It, It is essentially what we would call hell anyways. But there is this awaiting judgment the great white throne of judgment, where mankind, those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior, are thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the ultimate destination of those who reject Christ. There are no more chances at this point. It is too late at this junction, and this will be an eternal death. You know, when we stop and we think of the finality of man, I'll never forget going and witnessing to to one of my cousins one time. And he was saying, I mean, he was a guy who definitely was living for himself. You know, he, he participated fully in Frank Sinatra theology. He did it his way. He wasn't going to go and do it God's way. He was going to go and do it his way. There was nothing that anyone could go and say against him or, or anything like that to convince him. And, and I, I told him one time, I said, but then you'll go to hell if you die rejecting Jesus Christ. And he says, well, who cares? I'll just burn up. And I said, that's not the way it works. See, in hell, I described to him here, and I, I must have been 12 or 13 years old. I said, hell is, is, is like you get a perfect body, except you can absolutely feel pain continually. But your body will never expire, so to say, when you're in hell. And, and you'll just go, and you'll burn and burn and burn and burn and burn forever. You know what his response was? Oh. He wasn't ready to get saved at that moment. He wasn't ready to surrender, but he had absolutely no excuse to live a life rejecting Jesus Christ. And we need to understand, because when we go and we hold back and when people don't understand what hell is really like, what people don't understand what this ultimate death is really like, they come up with all kinds of excuses, and they're, they're, they're excuses that are based in ignorance. Many people go to hell, not from ignorance that there is a hell, but for ignorance of what hell is like. They go and say, oh, I'm going to go to hell and go party with my friends. No, you're not. 
Oh, I'm going to go to hell and, and, and just, it's just going to be for a little bit. You know, I've seen people get burned on fire. I mean, sure, it'll be 30 seconds of pain and, and suffering and things like that. But, but, but it's worth that 30 seconds to go into and to live my life how I want to here. No. Well, hell is just really nothingness. No, it's not true. Hell is a real place, and if we look at the description that is given in the Word of God, we see that it takes away the ignorance of people. And when we go and we proclaim it to them, and we tell them what hell is really like, we'll find that nobody wants to be there, and nobody wants other people to go there either. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here this morning. We need to understand this judgment here, the great white throne of judgment. First of all, it's for unbelievers. It is for those who are unsaved. It is for those who have rejected Jesus Christ. Those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, but those who have rejected Jesus Christ, those are who will be there at the great white throne of judgment. And accomplishments in this life does not matter. If you look at our text here in Revelation chapter 20, it says... Then I saw a great white throne in verse 11, starting in verse 11, excuse me. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it and uh, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, listen to this carefully, small and great standing before God, small and great standing before God. And this is vital to point out here. Accomplishments in this life do not matter when it comes to this judgment. Small and great are going to be at this judgment, at the great white throne of judgment. This is vital to point out. Salvation from final death and this judgment is not based upon your merit. It's not based upon works. It's not based upon your merit. Uh, salvation is based upon the merit of Christ. And if you are in Christ, that is what it is based upon. It is not based upon, oh, I, I went and found a cure for cancer. Well, praise the Lord you found a cure for cancer, but do you have Jesus? Are you in Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Well, I've gone and I was the, the, the greatest basketball player that ever lived. We think about that when it comes to Kobe Bryant here. I, I don't know. I, I assume he'll probably be at this judgment. I, I don't know that for certain, but, but all indications of his life point that he will probably be at this judgment seat. It doesn't matter how many three-pointers he made. It doesn't matter how many millions of dollars he had. The question is, is, is he in Christ? That's the question. It's the question that faces all of us. Small and great stand before God. The books, it says the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The books, first of all, here we have the book of life, and we'll look at that here in just a moment and, and look at the book of life, but we also have the books of works. And, and these are the evidences that are presented. Now understand here, I'm using this word, it's a judgment. It's a judgment seat. It's the great white throne of judgment. Understand that. Understand that. It is the great white throne of judgment, which means that it is a courtroom setting. So when I use this word, understand what I'm saying here. It's very much so in this case. These books, these books of works are the evidence that is presented. You know, in every court case, people go and they, they submit evidence. They submit evidence and then either the defense is built around the evidence or, or, or the, uh, the persecution, or not persecution, excuse me, the prosecution. Sometimes it is a persecution. But the prosecution is, is based upon the evidence. 
And of course, the judge is to go in to look at the, the, the arguments of both sides. And, and he goes and he, he evaluates the evidence. And then he comes out with a verdict. Guilty or acquitted. Guilty or innocent. And these are the evidences that are presented. It, it is a courtroom setting and the trial happens. Remember here, God is the judge. Jesus is the defense attorney generally. We think about that. He is our advocate before God the Father for the believer. Satan, he's the accuser or the prosecutor, and the individuals are the defendants. At least that's how it works for the believer here. And as we looked at last Sunday night, or maybe it was a couple of Sunday nights ago, God's moral law is the standard by which we are judged. What God has claimed is right, what is right, what is wrong, that, that is what we are judged upon. And of course the question is, is because we've all sinned, we've all broken God's moral law, we've all failed in that standard. The question is, is do we have somebody who has made a, paid a price for us, which is Jesus Christ, our advocate. But for the unbeliever, notice here Jesus isn't the defense attorney. He's the judge. And notice here, Satan's not mentioned at the great throne of judgment. He's bound for a thousand years at this point in hell. The great, well, actually, he's already cast into the great white throne, or excuse me, the great, uh, the, the fiery uh, pit, the lake of fire. So it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different here because these individuals are forced to defend themselves. And the evidence itself is the prosecution. It's an interesting setting. Neither the prosecutor nor the defense attorney are here, at least as it pertains to those positions. All men are defending themselves, and this is why the books are opened. And understand here, God is not somebody who's, who's going to have a mistrial. He's not somebody who's going to, going to go and say, okay, we need to appeal God's verdict. He's not going to put up with that. So he's going to be perfectly thorough at this judgment seat. He's going to be perfectly thorough at this judgment seat. The, the books are opened, and like I said, there'll be no mistrial, there'll be no appeals, and there will be one final verdict that everyone is in agreement with. The defendant and the judge will be in agreement with this. And anyone who is, who is going and looking out, we're, they're all good. everybody's going to be in agreement here. And the evidence is comprehensive and it is exhaustive. These books are literally books of every single act that we have done. Now, of course, I'm assuming that there are those for, for those of us who are Christians too, that God is recording all these things. Now, we're not here at this judgment seat if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, so praise the Lord for that. But for those who haven't accepted Christ as their Savior, every work that they had done is written down and it is presented. And God will go over this tediously. It will be a judgment that is, is every little thing. And then you did this. And then you did this. And then you thought this. And then you did this. And then you thought this. There is nothing that is hidden from God. And so therefore, it is all revealed at this time. Incredible. Incredible. Perhaps there will be those who start the trial with their defense. 
I somewhat doubt this because of the awesomeness of God. I really think in all honesty that people will go up and they will see the awesomeness and the greatness of God and His holiness and see who He is and they will be convicted of their sin and they will not really need this trial. God will still go and do this trial so that no one could go, so there could be no doubts. But let's just for a moment pretend that people will actually try to defend themselves because perhaps they will. We don't know. There are some people who shake their fists at, gods on a day, on God, at God on a daily basis, so perhaps they will still try to shake their fist at God when it comes to the great white throne of judgment. Like I said, that tends not to be the case throughout Scripture. When people are confronted with the holiness of God, they fall down and they say, Woe is me, I'm an unclean man, I'm undone, says them. But perhaps there will be some who are such great sinners and so arrogant that they will try to defend themselves against God. And let's think about some of these defenses that they may have. As soon as some see God as judge, those who believed in other religions will know that their first defense is not valid. You know, there are some people here who they reject God today because they believe in Muhammad. There are some today who reject God because they, they believe in the teachings of Buddha. There are some who reject God today because they're Hindus. There are some who reject God today because they're atheists and they say, I do not believe in God. But those who, who have gone and placed their faith in other places, in false places, in false gods, they will go and they will be confronted with seeing God. And they'll know their first defense doesn't work. They'll say, it ain't Muhammad who's sitting there. It's not Hare Krishna. They'll say, I guess that defense won't work. So they'll, they'll go and they'll, they'll take that one, crumple it up and throw it away. They'll crumple it up and they'll throw it away there. They'll, they'll get off that defense pretty quick. They'll realize it's not a valid defense. The atheist, I, I, I mean, I, this is a sad time, okay? The great white throne of judgment is a sad time. People are about to be condemned and cast into hell. But there is just a slight bit of humor to think about the face of atheists when they see Jesus Christ on the throne. Oh, you don't exist! Surprise! Here he is. I mean, it's not like I said. The, the, the grand scheme of things is not funny, but, but it's just a little humorous to think about these people who had all these evidences. God says, my invisible attributes are clearly seen. You saw these things. I know somebody told you about Jesus Christ because you rejected him. Because, I mean, let's, let's be frank about it. Nobody's born an atheist. And all of a sudden, they see God on the throne. <laughs> So atheists, atheists will know that there is a God. Muslims will know that all is false. Buddhists will, will be corrected. And the universalists will see that there is an exclusive judge of the universe. And they will see him for who he is. The most common defense that I can think of that people could actually go and use at this time, like I said, I don't actually think they'll truly try to defend themselves. But if they did, the defense would be something like, Personal merit, good works. And they'll say, you know what? I don't feel too bad going into this judgment. I did some good things. I did good things in my life. Perhaps they were, they were good church-going people. I went to church all the time. I tithed. I did all these things, they say. Ah, I can make it. I'll tell God he's, you know what? He's making a mistake. I'm supposed to be in the other line, and he'll see when he examines my life. Does he not know how I fed the poor? Does he not know how I went and I, and I did all these works? Ah, surely he'll know. He'll know. 
But remember, God doesn't make a mistake. He, he didn't accidentally go and, and, and miscount or, uh, or, or have a malfunction on his, uh, on his app uh, like the Democrats did here earlier this week or anything like that. that, that that's not going to be. There's going to be no mistakes with God as to who's at what judgment. And God's going to come and they're going to say in presenting, leaning on their merit, they're going to say, ah, well, let's look at the evidence. I did more good works than I did bad works. I'm good enough. And God is going to say, you're right, let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the evidence. And what does the evidence say? Well, James 2, 10 and 11 says this. It says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. They'll be confronted with the problem that their life is lacking. That they've all sinned in one area, because all have sinned, at least one area, probably multiple. But it doesn't matter how little you sin. If you sin once, you've broken God's moral law. You're condemned by the law. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. They will also soon realize that their good works are not enough. Or excuse me, that their good works are not a positive, but simply an expectation. You see, many people go and they say, well, I've done enough good things to outweigh my bad things. The problem is, is that's not how it works. It, it, it's not as though that, that we go and we compile our good works in one area and God says, wow, that's so weighty, you swayed me. It's that God says, he who sees good and doesn't do it, to him it is a sin. It's that God goes and he says, the good works are the expectation. He, he says that, that, that for by grace are you saved through faith and on yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then he goes and he says that he prepared works, good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. What is he going and saying? Not only has a purpose for us, but he says that works are the expectation. When we don't do the good things, it's not that we're, we're, we're all of a sudden uh, you, you know, lacking in, in one area or something like that. It's, it's, it's when we do these good things, it's not that we're overcoming and that we're doing great things and we're able to sway God. It's that we're doing what God says is, is the expectation. It's the bare minimum. You know, if, if a waiter or a waitress were to come and to bring you your drink, but then not bring you your food, to go in and say, I'm never going to bring you your food. Would you be upset? Yeah. You'd say, well, why, why didn't you bring me your food? Said, I brought you five drinks. You don't have to worry about it. I brought you five drinks. You don't have to worry about that. You'd go and say, are you crazy? It doesn't matter if you brought me five drinks, if you brought me Pepsi and, and, and Sunkist and tea and coffee and water. It doesn't matter if you brought me those five things. I ordered food. The expectation was that I would get food. God goes, the expectation is these good works. We're not doing God a favor when we do good works. We're doing what is expected of us. And Isaiah 64, 6 puts it this way. It says, but we are all like an unclean thing. And then all are, are, are excuse me, we start over here. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind have taken us away. Our good works are just filthy rags on the scale. 
against a two-ton weight. And God says, get those filthy rags off my scale. I don't want them there. We can't be good enough. The conclusion of this judgment will be the lake of fire, or as we commonly refer to it, hell. This judgment will not be appealed. It will not be agreed upon, or excuse me, it will be agreed upon and submitted to, and each person will be convicted by the overwhelming evidence that they are guilty. This is the incredible thing. The people at the great white throne of judgment will not bemoan the judgment. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. Don't I mean don't mistake me. But it will not be gnashing of teeth raising a fist towards God. In Philippians 2, 9 and 9 through 11, it says this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. Those in hell. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, indicating submission. And every tongue will confess, proclaiming agreement, that Jesus is Lord, that the judgment was righteous. They won't argue, they won't complain. They'll have those books open, they'll look at them, they'll go through each one, each work. The evidence will be overwhelming. And even if they started off with a defense, at the end, they will proclaim God's right. God is right. Incredible, incredible thing. But as I mentioned, there was another book that was open there. It was God's Book of Life. And this book contains, this is the Book of Life, and it contains the names of those who are saved. In Philippians 4.3, it says this, And I urge you also, true companion, help those women who labor with me uh, in the gospel, with Clement also, and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And, and this is an interesting situation that's happening in Philippians, that, that two women, they wrote Iodia and Satiki, they were going and, and butting heads, and uh, Paul goes and says, hey, true yoke, true yoke fellow, I want you to go and to, uh, to smooth this over with them, to encourage them to, to go in unity and serve Christ. And, and he goes and he says, uh, to my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, whose names are in the book of life, those who have accepted Christ as their Savior, their names are in the book of life, they're saved. And we'll look at this more extensively, this idea of the book of life here, uh, as we take a systematic uh, approach in looking at the doctrine of life. Surely the book of life will come up. So we're going to look at that in the coming months uh, at the book of life. Uh, but I just want us to understand the basic principle that it is those who are saved are written in the book of life. And it says interesting here in verse 15 of our text, it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's not in any of those who had more good works than bad works written in these other books. It's not in any of those who had more righteous deeds or had enough righteous deeds or had a certain standard of righteousness that they were not cast into the lake of fire, but it is anyone whose name was not written into the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The question is, is are we in Jesus Christ when it comes to life and it comes to ultimate death? 
But I want us to understand about this ultimate death because this is ultimately that competitor or that rival of life. And where do people end up? Where do people end up if they reject God's life, the life that he provides for them? The life that he so mercifully gives us after we have so egregiously offended him. He goes and he offers us life. He still goes and gives us life, but those who reject this life, where do they end up? Is life really a big deal? Is it really a big deal? Is eternal life, is God's gift of eternal life really a big deal? The answer is yes. And I think we can see this very plainly through the description of hell. And that's the second thing I want us to see, not just the judgment today, but also this description of hell. And I'll try to get through these as quickly as we can uh, this morning. But it says, uh, first of all, we need to understand something here. It's not nothingness. Hell is not nothingness. In fact, uh, God makes it plain and clear that it's not nothingness, that nothingness would be better than hell. And this is an interesting idea here. Because nothingness would be better than hell. And people like to go and say that, that when I die, it's just going to be nothing, or that hell is just nothingness, and, and different things like that. But God's word actually comes out and says the exact opposite. It says in Matthew 26, 24, it says, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to him, excuse me, but woe to that man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for him, excuse me, for that man, if he had not been born. What does not being born mean? Well, to degree nothingness. Here's what he's saying. It'd be better for him if, if, if nothingness happened to him. Matthew 18, 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child and said to him, and, excuse me, called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted... And become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Nothingness would be better in hell. It's not a place that you want to be. If some people think it's going to be a party, it's not going to be a party. It's eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 46 says this, and these uh, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Did you hear that? Eternal punishment. Everlasting punishment away from the presence of the Lord is another description. Second Thessalonians 1 9, it says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's not a place you want to be. It's everlasting uh, punishment, it's everlasting destruction. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13 50 says, And cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It'll be a fire that never goes out. Mark 9, 43, it says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands uh, to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. It is a continual fire. It is also something that is prepared for the devil and demons. And this is something that is, is interesting and vital for us to understand. God designed for us to live. When he made man, 
He wanted man to be into life. He didn't create hell for man. He created hell for the devil and for demons. He doesn't want mankind to go there. He doesn't want anyone to go there. And it says here in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't designed for us. But yet, if we reject Christ, that is where we'll go. It is also something that destroys both the soul, the body and the soul. In Matthew 20, excuse me, 10, 28, it says this. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. It's going to be a terrible place. And in fact, people won't want to be there, but also people won't want others to be there. And in fact, let's turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. We're going to look at this quickly here. There's so much in this passage uh, in Luke chapter uh, chapter 19, or excuse me, Luke chapter 16, uh, Luke chapter 16. Um, but we're not going to get into this uh, too much, although I, I, we could spend probably three hours just looking at this. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, it says this, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and uh, fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at the gate and desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked up his sores and so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also uh, died and was buried and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in, the bosom, in, in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us, you and there is a great gulf fixed between those who want to pass uh, from there, and you cannot pass, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Many lessons we can learn from this, but I want us to take note that this rich man and Lazarus, who are in a place called Sheol, and there are two sides of the Sheol, uh, or, or as the, the rich man is in uh, Hades, uh, and by the way, Hades is cast. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire at this judgment, is what it says here in Revelation chapter 20. That, that his plea was, please send Lazarus to, to, to my friends, to my family. Please send Lazarus so, so that they can see him, so that they can repent. Because I don't want them to come here. 
If I can't be, uh, uh, have, have even just a, a little bit of relief from my torments, it's so terrible. And by the way, the lake of fire is going to be even worse. He says, please, please don't let anyone else come here. You know, people go and say that, that others who are in hell want people in hell. That's not true. But with one exception. Two, kind of. Satan and his demons. They want people in hell. But even those who work for Satan and his demons on this earth, those who worship Satan, those who, who are caught up in the occult, those who are caught up in, in all of this terrible stuff, and they, they, they go and they, they, they seek to please Satan on this earth when they get to hell, they're not going to go, wow, this was a party. They're not going to go, gee, I, I, I'm glad I made that decision. They're not going to say that. What they're going to go and say is, is, no, no, please, please send somebody. Please send somebody. Go warn my family. Warn, warn my witches come and please tell them that they're doing wrong. Because it's so terrible. And they know that they're wrong. They have that guilt upon them. Nobody in hell, no human in hell, wants others to go there. But you also notice there that he said, what Abraham said to the rich man, he said, they have the law and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. And he said, well, if one rises from the dead, if one rises from the dead, if you send Lazarus back, understand something, the people who sit there and they say, I, 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 you, you need to prove it. You need to prove it. I, I need this great sign. I, I need some, some kind of crazy thing to happen in order to believe in Jesus Christ. That's not true. If they will not hear the message of the gospel, if they will not hear the message of Moses, if they will not hear the message of the prophets, if they will not hear the message of Jesus Christ, they will not be saved. They will not be saved. They'll reject Christ. It's not good enough. It's not going to be a party in hell. No one's going to want to be joining their friends or family there, and their friends and family there uh, are, are not going to want them to join them there. It's going to be a great distress. Nobody wants them in hell. But I want us to conclude here with this third point, remembering that God's design and desire is not for this ultimate death. It's not for the great white throne of judgment. It's not for the lake of fire. It's not for hell. But it is for life. God doesn't want people to die. He didn't design us to die. He's against innocent physical death. And he is against spiritual death. And he is against the ultimate death. He doesn't want it. He's not for it. He's not excited for those things. See, God is just and he is holy. And because he is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. And because he is just, there must be a payment for sin. So it's, it's not as though God can just go and say, ah, you know what, you sinned against me, it's okay, whatever. Ah, I'm just going to pretend like it didn't happen. No, there had to be a payment for that sin. There had to be an atonement for that sin. There had to be a propitiation for that sin. And God gave the propitiation. He gave the atonement. And it was through Jesus Christ, his son, who came to this earth, lived a perfect life because he is God, 
And he went and he, he preached the gospel. He preached repent. He told the people and they went and they hung him on a cross. And as they hung him on a cross, he died there for you and me. He bore the weight of the sin of the entire world. It tells us in 1 John 2, 2, that he's not the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He went and he took that sin so that he could go and save us to the uttermost. And as he was on that cross, he died paying the penalty and he stayed dead for three days, but then he rose again, defeated death. Because remember, death is the rival. It is the competitor to life. And he defeated it. To provide a way of salvation to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Though there is ultimate death, I want us to remember that there is also ultimate life. And it was secured through Jesus Christ. But this ultimate life is conditional. Not based on our merit, but based on if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. We do is what it says in, in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name. If we do is what it says in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If we do what it says in Romans 10.9, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, then thou shalt be saved. If we do is what it says a few verses down, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in Romans 10.13. When we do this, we repent of our unbelief. There is that repentance of that unbelief, and we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. I want us to go to 1 John chapter 1. This is where we'll end this, this morning. It's 1 John chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and look at the whole chapter. It's not a very long chapter, but I just want to point out a few things here. Because it makes it very clear that God is about life and he provides a way of salvation for us. It says in John, 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, That which was from the beginning, who was from the beginning? God. He's the self-existent one. The one where life flows from. That which we have heard of, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The word of life. Who is the word of life? It's Jesus Christ. The life, not the death, not the mean, bigoted God who, who, who wants to go and squash us, but the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, that ultimate life, which is from the Father and is manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. What is that fellowship in? It's in life. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Death doesn't bring joy. It might bring relief, physical death, but ultimate death surely brings no joy. It's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But life, in ultimate life, it brings a fulfillment of joy. And this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There's evidences to our new life. 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's assurance of our salvation. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All of us have sinned. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a way of salvation from our sin. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Remember, we all have that need of salvation. I just want to read the first two verses also, chapter 2. It says this. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Salvation isn't a license to sin. It is liberty to be free from sin. And if anyone sins, because we will continue sinning, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the whole world. There is plenty of forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ. He does not lack forgiveness. There's plenty of life to be found in Jesus Christ. He does not lack life. He is the source of life. But we must come to him on his terms because we have violated his law. We have sinned against him. And that ultimate life is found only in Jesus Christ. Today as we conclude, the application is is pretty simple. One, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, accept him. I beg with you and plead with you. Two, if you do know Christ as your Savior, be thankful for the provision that God has made and be motivated to tell others about Christ because God wants life for them. Now, this is why when we look at the doctrine of life and we often just stop and we think about life as as physical life and we think about being anti-abortion, being against maybe euthanasia and being against these things. And and, 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 hey, you you know, you've you've listened to me from this pulpit enough. You know, I am against abortion. I'm against euthanasia. And I I will, will preach fiery against those things and I will stand for physical life. But one thing we must not forget that while we stand for physical life, we must also be pro eternal life. Because though there is a physical death in this life, there is also also an ultimate death at the great white throne of judgment where people will be cast into the lake of fire. We must remember to preach the gospel as we stand for life. Let's close in a word of prayer here this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity given us to come and to look at your word, what a privilege that is. And Lord, as we've come and we've seen the ultimate death, Father, we thank you that it is not just an ultimate death and, and there is no good news, but Father, that there is good news, that there is an ultimate life. And Father, I pray that as we, we consider this doctrine of life, that we remember the ultimate death so that we will proclaim and live the ultimate life that you give to us. And Father, we would just pray that you might be glorified today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.